As you've heard already, we begin a new sermon series today. The series title is called Suffering and Sovereignty. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph from the Old Testament. Let's begin by reading our verses for today. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, Genesis 37, verses 1 to 8. Let's read. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was of the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I'll say this, if you had trouble reading that on the screen, I didn't realize it was going to look like that on that screen. It looked much nicer on my, on my computer. So we just read the first eight verses. Today we're going to look at all of chapter 37. But before we get into it, let me just mention two things. In these eight verses, you will see the word brother four times. And in chapter 37, it actually occurs 21 times. And in these first eight verses, you see three times that we're told that Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. When you have that kind of repetition, you know that it is important. The sermon series is on suffering and sovereignty, and the word sovereignty has to do with rule and authority and power. A sovereign, we don't use that word much at all today, is a king or a queen. And we see in the Bible, as God shows us, that God rules not just a country or not just this earth, but the entire universe because he made it. Now, I'd like to, to, for us to get some background on God's sovereignty by looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the, the Confession of Faith, you can think of it as a topical summary of Bible teaching that was written in the 1600s. Now, we're going to be reading a modern English version, but you can still see a few traces of the old English in it. There's three paragraphs that I want us to look at. First, Chapter 3, paragraph 1. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Yet he ordered all things in such a way that he is not the author of sin, nor does he force his creatures to act against their wills. So here we see God is wise and holy. And we know from reading the scripture that God is perfect in all of his character and characteristics. 
He's perfectly wise. He is perfectly holy, and holy means he's without fault. There's no evil in him, no sin. And we see that God acted freely. That is, God is not coerced. He is not constrained by anyone or anything. A related thought, God is all-powerful. He is able to accomplish everything that he chooses. So not only does he act freely, but also unchangeably which means that God chooses and acts perfectly. He does not need to change. You'll never hear God say, oops, oh my, I didn't mean for that to happen. God does not make mistakes. That's what the idea of unchangeably is showing us. And the word ordain means to choose. So God freely and perfectly chooses. And he perfectly and freely chooses whatever comes to pass. This covers everything. It leaves nothing out anywhere in the universe. So you could look at this and say, nothing is outside of God's control. Nothing is outside of God's plan. But then let's personalize it. This means that God is the author of your story. Now we're told more in just that first paragraph. We're told that God is not the author of sin. There's no evil in God. And God does not coerce people to act against our wills. Which means that you and I freely choose all that we do, including when we are selfish and unkind, sinful, rebellious. Now, we can't explain, because it's a mystery to us, how it is that, that we can both freely choose and God's sovereignty goes together, but it does. Then in paragraph 2 of chapter 3, the writers choose to, to address one particular aspect. They say, although God knows whatever may or can come to pass under all conceivable conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass under such conditions. So what, the, what they're trying to say is, God does not look into the future and see what happens and go, oh, well, that's what I want to have happen. I'm going to put my stamp on it. That's my will. No, that implies that there are other forces acting in the world, and God just says, okay, I'm going to choose this. No, it's a roundabout way of saying everything that happens is God's will. Everything that happens is part of God's plan. And as human beings, we can struggle with this, especially when God's plan includes suffering of some kind for us. And then in chapter 5, Confession talks about God's providence. God, the, gr the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, he exercises this most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So here we're reminded God is the creator of all things. He's made everything that exists. And not only did he create it, but he sustains it. He keeps it going. That word upholds means to sustain. 
So God upholds, he directs. The word dispose, we think of disposing as throwing away. Here's one of the older English versions of it, which means to arrange. So you see that God sustains everything, directs everything, arranges everything, and governs everything. It's a way of saying God is in control over all creatures, all actions, all things. doesn't leave anything out. So as we look at the life of Joseph, which is a true account, it's not a myth, it's not a made-up story, everything that happens in this story, and you're going to see a lot of mess, it all happens according to God's plan. Now, just a note. Your opinion and mine of God's sovereignty has a great deal to do with our view of ourselves. You see, if a person agrees with what God tells us in the Bible, that he made us, and he made us not only to know him, but to depend upon him. And so we need his wisdom, and we need his strength. We need his guidance. We need the other people that God puts around us. And God wants to use us in their lives. If we have that picture of life, then God's sovereignty is a very comforting thing. But if we have any other view, that God is optional, that I have more ability than what God says I do, then God's sovereignty is not comfortable at all. It's a problem. How do you and I look at God's sovereignty? So let me give just a little bit of background to help us understand some of the dynamics of what we're going to encounter as we start the story of Joseph. In the book of Genesis, we see four generations related to Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all his brothers. God comes to Abraham and begins a relationship and makes a promise. He says, you're going to have children. You're going to have a son. Now, he makes him wait 25 years. But that promised son finally can't, comes, and his name is Isaac. Abraham has other sons, but Isaac is the promised son. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. We'll talk about them in a minute. Well, I think a lot of people, when they read the book of Genesis, they see a lot about Abraham, a lot about Jacob, and they kind of pass over Isaac. He's still an important character. He passes on his faith in God to Jacob. He also passes on at least one of his flaws. We'll see that in just a minute. Well, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, played favorites. They had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And Esau was the one who was a few minutes older than Jacob. And in that day, that made all the difference. Because the older son is the son who got the blessing from his father and got the larger part of the inheritance. Isaac's favorite was the older son, Esau. And Rebekah's favorite was Jacob. Now, before they were born, God gave a prophecy about the two boys and said that the older would serve the younger. doesn't mean he would literally serve. The way it works out is what it means is that the younger son was actually the one who's going to receive the blessing from his father and get the larger part of the inheritance. Well, when it comes time for Isaac to give the blessing, he wants to give it to Esau because Esau is his favorite and Esau is the older son. Well, what happens is Rebekah and Jacob trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob by Jacob pretending to be Esau. And this can happen because Isaac is basically blind. 
And so the prophecy is fulfilled by trickery. Esau hears about it, and he is mad. He swears, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. And he's being serious. And so Rebekah convinces Isaac to send Jacob off to her brother Laban. And to make a long story short, because there's a lot of detail, you can look at Jacob, and there's a whole lot to not like about Jacob. Um, Jacob meets not only Laban, but he meets Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he falls head over heels in love. And he wants to marry her, and Laban says yes. So the wedding day comes, and in that day, the bride was totally veiled, and not just with this little gauzy stuff that you can still see through. And the dad didn't lift the veil any part of the, you know, of the ceremony, totally covered. And so Laban does a bride swap. And instead of marrying Rachel, Jacob marries Leah, Rachel's older sister. And he doesn't find out about the switch until it's too late. He's married and the deed is done. And he's really upset. And Laban says, oh, well, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Look, just finish your honeymoon week with Leah, and then you can marry Rachel. And so that's what happens. So now Jacob is married to both sisters. And we read in the book of Genesis that as God looks at Jacob and Leah and Rachel, that Leah is unloved. Some translations you'll see it says Leah is hated. Jacob so much dismisses her, really doesn't care about her so much, you could almost call it hatred. And so God blesses Leah with children. Now you see, there's another thing about that day. That society in that day told women this. Here's the best that you can go for. Get married and have children and especially have sons. The more, the better. The more you have, the greater esteem you have with all of your friends. God gives Leah four sons. Rachel is really upset. She is mad. Can't do anything about it. So she follows the practice of the day, takes one of her handmaids, Bilhah, lovely name, isn't it? And has Bilhah marry Jacob as kind of a second-class wife. And here's the arrangement. Any of Bilhah's children are considered Rachel's. God gives Bilhah two sons. Well, at this point, Leah has had four, but she's not having any more. She decides, okay, I can do that too. She takes one of her handmaids, Zilpah, has her marry Joseph, uh, Jacob. Lots of J's, J names in this one. She has two sons. And then God gives Leah two more sons. So you do the math. Jacob, at this point, has ten sons. It's only at this point that Rachel has Joseph. He's her first child, her first son. He's son number 11 in the order of things. But Rachel is still Jacob's favorite wife. And so Joseph is J Jacob's favorite son. And we read in the verses that we just looked at a minute ago that Joseph is called the son of Jacob's old age. And scholars are not 100% sure, but they think this is what this means. Just as Isaac was the promised son to Abraham, and Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob was the chosen one out of Esau and Jacob for Isaac, there's going to be one of his sons that God is going to work through 
to keep a promise he made to Abraham that all the world would be blessed somewhere through his family. And scholars believe Jacob was hoping and believing that Joseph was the one, was that chosen one. Turns out he wasn't, but he thought. So that's a little bit of background. And now let's kind of walk quickly through chapter 37. Jacob is living in the land of Canaan, which is later going to become the land of Israel, that the nation of Israel has. He's also called Israel. He has two names. He was given the name Jacob by his parents. He was given the name Israel by God when they had a very close encounter of a wrestling kind. So, And his two names are used interchangeably. Then we meet Joseph. He's 17. And we're told that Joseph gives a bad report on his brothers. Now, in the English, you're not sure... Okay, sounds like they did something bad, may have done something bad. You don't know the way it's expressed in English what Joseph's motivation was. Did they deserve to be told on? Did they really do something bad or not? In the Hebrew, it's much easier to tell. Joseph wanted to get them in trouble. That was his intent. And so maybe he exaggerated. Often, the way it's expressed includes that idea. He exaggerated what they did. He wanted to get them in trouble. No response given about Jacob from that. What we're told instead is that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So if it wasn't clear in terms of he's the first son of his favorite wife, now it's made very clear his favoritism. And remember, it started way back when he first got married. The favoritism did. So this is favoritism again. And then Jacob gives Joseph the coat of many colors. Now there's debate about colors of the coat and the style of the coat and all that kind of stuff. What's pretty clear is that the coat was an obvious sign of favoritism. And so then we're told that his brothers hated Joseph and what we read was that he could not, they could not speak peaceably. Literally what it means is they could not say shalom to him. They, they could not, they were so angry with him, hated him so much they couldn't say a nice word to him at all. And then, so it just keeps heaping one on another, Joseph has these dreams and he shares his dreams. And you could say this is like throwing gas on a fire. He shares the dream. And in the dream, what we read, his sheaf stands up and the other ones bow down. The brothers got the message they understood, oh, oh, really, buddy? You're, you're son number 11, count it, 11. We're all older than you are, and we're supposed to bow down to you? And so the result? The brothers hated Joseph even more. Now, I've got to pause here. I'm going to say this maybe once or twice. It's one thing just to kind of read through this and breeze through it. But these are real people in real situations. So imagine that you're in that situation, either as Joseph or one of the brothers, or just looking on and what's going on. If I'd been there, good chance I would have been thinking, Joseph, what are you thinking? Your brothers already don't like you. What are you doing here, buddy? Now, we don't know exactly what he was thinking, but we can tell this, reading and looking ahead, God had a reason for giving Joseph those dreams, especially next week as we look further. 
Those dreams, I think, are going to be important. It's going to be implied, but they're going to be important to Joseph where he ends up. But again, thinking of this, putting yourself there, if you were part of that family, look at the mess. Jacob's playing favorite with his wives, and instead of just having one, he ended up with four. And of course, all the sons of those mothers can kind of see the pecking order of things and who's loved and who's not. And it becomes very clear who the favorite son is, Joseph. So if you're one of the other ten, Benjamin's not in the picture yet. Okay, you know where you stand. Okay, today we would call this a very dysfunctional family. And that would be kind in terms of what is going on with them. And then think of Joseph. I'm reading into things just a teeny bit. But if, if you were to have to answer this question, is Joseph immature? Are there any signs of his immaturity? I think most people would say yes. Is he aware what, you know, you think, was he aware of the favoritism and the hatred? I think so. It'd be really hard not to be. And another thought, did he enjoy being the favorite? Well, unless he was an unusual child, the answer is yes. He probably did. And I ask those questions just to say this. Joseph isn't innocent. It's made very clear in the New Testament. All of us have sinned. Okay, he's not innocent and he has, he has growing up to do. As you look at all of this. Now let's continue through the rest of the chapter. The ten older brothers are sent off watching Jacob's sheep because he's a shepherd. And Joseph is back home. Could this be another form of favoritism? Possibly. Okay, because being a shepherd is not a fun thing. Okay, it's not a, it's not a fun thing. One, you're outside all the time in all weather. And the sheep you're watching are stupid. They don't know what danger looks like. They don't know weeds, bad weeds that can make them sick from grass. You've got to protect them from that. They are very skittish. And you have to work to keep them settled. There's all kinds of work that comes is involved in all of this. And so the brothers are away watching the sheep. Dad decides he's going to send Joseph to check on the brothers and the sheep. Joseph is supposed to come back, tell them how things are going. And when Dad sends him off, he knows that the brothers were up at Shechem, which is about 50 miles north of where they lived. So Joseph is an obedient son, and he goes off. But again, I'm thinking, what is Jacob thinking? Is he not aware of his son's hatred of Joseph? And again, this is speculation, but I realized this as I asked myself the question. Sin is by its nature self-deceiving. So very likely, Jacob is either blind to his favoritism or he's minimized it. Oh yeah, I gave Joseph the coat. Okay, but brothers, you know, they should be okay with that. Again, these are human beings that are doing all of these things. So off Joseph goes. Goes to Shechem, finds out his brothers and the sheep aren't there, which is really not a surprise. Because remember I said sheep are not very smart. They eat grass. You leave them in one place long enough, they eat the grass and eat the grass and eat the grass and eat the grass until it's dead. So you've got to keep moving them. And they have moved on to Dothan, which was about 17 miles north. 
Well, Joseph gets to Shechem. He's looking around. No brothers, no sheep. And he just happens, and I put that in quotes, to meet a man. Oh, you're looking for a group with ten, bro ten brothers and a whole bunch of sheep, right? Oh, yes, they went north to Dothan. And so off he goes to Dothan to find them. And then we pick up this, the account in verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar. Now, again, think about it. How did they recognize him? The coat, the special coat. They, they, they see him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. They remember. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the, one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what comes of his dreams. The brother's hatred now has an opportunity to be expressed. It didn't really, they didn't really have much opportunity uh, at home unless they wanted to get immediately in trouble with their dad. But dad's not here. He's over 50 miles away. And they're here, and now Joseph is here. And they've had over 17 years of favoritism. That's the 17 years is just the part related to Joseph. They've got the part related to their moms before that. And even though they don't have the Ten Commandments yet, God had already told Noah, basically, you don't kill. But they're gonna. That's what they want to do. Well, at this point, Reuben, who's the oldest of the brothers, pipes up and says, look, guys, let's not kill him. Yeah, throw him in a pit. Okay, but don't do anything really bad to hurt him. And we're told, Reuben says this because he hopes later to sneak back around and to rescue Joseph. Now, how could this possibly work out? Think with me for a second. How can this possibly... Let's say that Reuben is successful. He sends the other nine brothers off with the sheep. He grabs Joseph and runs home. What's the story he's going to tell? He's probably going to point the finger at his brothers, right? He's going to throw them under the bus. Oh, Dad, you know, believe what your other sons were going to do. Look at what they did. Isn't that horrible? But I, I saved your favorite son. Okay? Reuben's looking out for himself. And part of the reason he's doing this, and we know this, is that he's already in trouble with his father for his own rebellion. He's looking out for himself. The brothers listen to Reuben. They grab Joseph, tear the coat off of him, throw him in a pit. And then, we don't know what happens, but apparently Reuben isn't here. Uh, he's gone off somewhere else. And they're having lunch. And in verse 26, Judah says to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites who happen to be distant cousins, because Ishmael was the son of Abraham. Sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him 
to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they, the Ishmaelites, took Joseph to Egypt. Now last week in our Sunday school, multi-generational Sunday school, we were studying the Ten Commandments, and the command we were looking at was, you shall not steal. In a sense, as you look at what's happening right here in the text, the brothers stole Joseph's life by selling him as a slave. He's no longer going to be home. Doesn't have any certainty he'll ever see his dad alive again. Won't have any of the comforts of being with family or anything else like that. He's now a slave. He eats when he's told to. He works, does the work he's told to do when he's told to do it. He gets to sleep only when they say he can. They stole his life. Now, what was Joseph's response to being thrown in the pit and being sold as a slave? We only find out after a little over 20 years have gone by. In Genesis 42, 21, Joseph's brothers are talking amongst themselves. And then they, Joseph's brothers, say to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and they're talking about Joseph, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So when you see what's going on here, Joseph wasn't strong and silent when he was in the pit and being sold as a slave. He begged. He was probably terrified. Yet he's sold. So now Joseph is gone, and his brothers think his dream is dead. They take Joseph's coat, rip it up some, dip it in some blood. They take it with them as they go back to Jacob, and they use some very strategic words. In fact, they don't even say a statement. They ask a question. Joseph see, uh, Jacob sees the coat and immediately jumps to a conclusion. My son is dead. But stop for a second and think. How did all ten brothers manage to keep a straight face with this? I'm sure they're both all thinking, you know what? I have to see this through. If any one of us cracks... We all lose. Our brother, our dad is going to be so mad at us. Yet they pull it off. Jacob sees the coat, says, my son is dead, and he is inconsolable. Because Joseph wasn't just the son. Jacob had attached dreams to Joseph and Joseph's life and his success. So he's inconsolable. And meanwhile, we're told, Joseph is sold in Egypt to Potiphar as a slave. Now, I want to jump ahead to the end of the story, not to give you any hope, but to see something else that's here. Years later, Joseph is speaking to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, he's speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this account in Genesis does not minimize the wrong that was done or excuse it. Joseph does forgive them. Otherwise, they probably all would have ended up, the brothers would have all ended up in prison and died in prison. But they didn't. But the point is, he's not minimizing. He says, you meant it for evil. Joseph's brothers hated Joseph and they acted out of that hatred, and God let them. Because the result was that Joseph ended up in Egypt 
which was part of God's plan. Now, as we talk, think about God's sovereignty, and we look at just the things we've covered today that were in chapter 37, it's an amazing list. First, you see the favoritism that was years in the making that fed the brothers' hatred. Then Joseph's bad report. He wants to get his brothers in trouble. The dreams throwing gas on the fire. Joseph getting to Shechem. Brothers aren't there, but just happens that there is a man who knows where they went. And so when he gets to Dothan where they are, plan A that the brothers immediately come up with, let's kill him, gets turned into plan B, let's sell him as a slave. But then the other thing is this. If the brothers had been in Shechem when Joseph encountered them, they might still have had opportunity to express their hatred, but there wouldn't have been any slave traders. Because slave traders only follow the trade route. And Shechem isn't on the trade route. But the brothers had moved from Shechem to Dothan. And Dothan is on the trade route. But the trade route's not like I-95, busy all the time. It just happens that when Joseph is with the brothers, they're all together, that a slave caravan was coming by. And the slave traders were available for Joseph to be sold. And the point is that none of this happened by accident. It was all part of God's plan. And then look at the people that we've met. There's Jacob, the brothers, and there's Joseph. We've already seen the sin of Jacob, his favoritism, his lack of love for his some of his wives and by kind of by extension probably his sons, his the ten brothers and their hatred. And we know that Joseph's not innocent either. But God's going to use Joseph in the future as a leader. But he's not ready yet. He needs to mature and change. If you read the account, God has already been working in Jacob's life for decades. But he's not done yet. Just like he's not done with us until we die or he takes us up to heaven, we're with him. And then Joseph's brothers... They're going to become the heads of the tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. You know, if this was part of your uh, family history and mine, I think I'd probably kind of skip over that part, some of this stuff. It's pretty ugly. And yet, God didn't let them. It's written down for everybody to read. And it's not a mistake. The brothers had a lot of growing to do spiritually as well. You see, one of our great needs, and it's not one that we think of that often, unless God's working in us, is that we need to be rescued from us. And sometimes God's goodness to us and his rescue comes in the form of our suffering. Now, as we've seen, sin plays a big part in the events that we've looked at today. So before we finish, let's talk just a minute about God's purposes for our sin. Not only does it work in a way we can't really understand to actually uh, accomplish his plan, but remember, God does not make us sin. We choose that on our own. So 
a good question to ask is, so why would God allow us to sin? Well, John Newton, the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace, was a pastor, and he also wrote a lot of letters. And a collection of his letters has been put in a book, and in, in this book, the, the one letter I'm thinking of has the title, The Advantages of Remaining Sin. I don't know about you, but I never usually put the word advantage together in the same sentence with sin. Okay? But he says that, or at least the title does. And so here are three thoughts. When you and I sin, though often we may be blind to it, we, there are times where we may see our own sinfulness and selfishness and its ugliness. Have you ever thought to yourself after you just did something, said something, I cannot believe I did that. That's not, I, I, don't, I don't want to do things like that, yet I just did. We surprise ourselves a little bit. We see the ugliness of our sin. You see, you and I don't take our sin seriously just by being told it's not a good thing. Parents are very well aware of this, both in trying to tell their children this. Sometimes we see it in ourselves. Also then, when we see our sin, we may be willing to trust less, willing to trust our own, put it in quotes, wisdom and goodness, because it really isn't. And our pride may be shaken as well. And thirdly, when we are sinning like this, and we have the promises that God has given us in his word of his forgiveness and his mercy, the beauty of God's forgiveness and his mercy and all that he gives us shines even brighter. Now, today is an introduction to sovereignty, God's sovereignty, to the story of Joseph and the suffering that we're going to see. question is, can you relate to Joseph? Have others hurt you? Do you feel as if your world is falling apart? That Do you feel like life has not gone the way I wanted it to go? Uh, or maybe you feel that God has forgotten you. I can imagine Joseph thinking several of these things. If those questions resonate with you, remember this. If you're a Christian, you have hope. Because you're never outside of God's good plans for you or his care. But remember that sometimes God's care for us includes suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, that you are not only powerful, but that you are perfectly good and loving. Lord, we thank you for what we see in the life of Joseph. We thank you for the mercy that we see, for your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for caring for us, that this is not just a story of something happened a long time ago, but you are the same today because you do not change. So we thank you for the hope that you give us. Thank you for your grace and goodness. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we singing next? We're going to respond with a song.